This is the most important thing we'll do in our worship service together. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day, would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're a month removed from looking at 1 Samuel. August was a full month of really great things, baptism and VBS and a guest speaker last week. So let's remember the victory of this Little shepherd boy David, this guy who came out out of nowhere. Of course, we know he, came, he didn't come out of nowhere because we saw him in chapter 16. We saw him be anointed by Samuel the prophet as the next king of Israel. But still, David was the runt that no one expected. And this runt is the one who ends up killing the giant, remember the champion of the Philistines, and then sends the rest of the Philistines running. So we pick up from the victory with the reaction of Saul and of his son, Jonathan. For one, the reaction is exaltation, and for the other, it's jealousy. And thus comes our title for this morning, Jealousy and Exaltation. No doubt Jonathan wasn't far from the action of the previous chapter. Can you imagine him standing on the sidelines and watching this and probably being the number one cheerleader in that moment? I mean, Jonathan was the one who decided to take on a whole group of Philistines with just him and his armor bearer not too many chapters ago. 
because he knew that the Lord was able to save with many or with few. It didn't matter. If the Lord was with them, they would win. Jonathan comes in in verse 1 of chapter 18 after seemingly being silent for a while. And he sees and understands the significance of David's victory kind of as the first one to do so. It seems like maybe Jonathan knew something about David's being chosen by God to succeed Saul, his father, as the next king. We don't know for sure. The way that the passage moves, it seems to move very quickly, so it sounds like maybe Jonathan had known at least something of his father's downfall and that there would be one who would come in, and David perhaps was just the obvious choice. Well, who else would God choose but the one that he killed a giant through not so long ago. Verse 1 tells us that Jonathan loved David. Again, look at the, the first words. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that is, as soon as David did, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Now, this is a really fascinating relationship, David and Jonathan, in the Old Testament. And this word that is used is a very close connection. Um, having souls knit together or tied up to each other's lives is very significant. It's not just because of David's victory, though. Jonathan is not just an admirer, but he is a fellow soldier for the Lord. And so we see this closeness is not just in, wow, David's just the best, and I'm going to follow him around, I'm going to be his groupie. But rather that with David, Jonathan finds an uncommon like-mindedness. Remember, so far, in the history of Saul's part in ruling Israel, Jonathan is kind of the standout guy as far as anyone really trusting the Lord and seeking the Lord's glory over his own. They find an uncommon like-mindedness. Both have a deep faith in both the Lord's ability and desire to deliver his people. Whereas other characters in this story are so often found cowering in fear and wondering what the Lord might do or what the, why the Lord isn't doing what they think he should be. So Jonathan has a deep connection to David. It's love that is accompanied by a covenant. If you look at the passage again, we have a little interjection in verse 2 about Saul taking David from his father's house. But then immediately, Jonathan made a covenant with David. That is a very formalized promise. And it was symbolized in a very obvious way. Jonathan gives David his robe, his armor, and his weapons. This is really ironic going, again, just back one chapter to chapter 17. Before David goes to attack Goliath, he goes and talks to Saul, and Saul says, here, take my armor. And David's like, no, I don't want that. I'm going to go with what's tried and true here. So again, let's not skip over the fact that the author is being very intentional to make a distinction between Saul and Jonathan here that we shouldn't miss. Jonathan's sharing in this covenant and giving all these things over to him was an act of loyalty. It was in every way the opposite of jealousy. It was exaltation to raise someone up, to praise them, to make much of them. You remember, too, that Israel, they're not allowed to have any blacksmiths according to Philistines' rule over them. If they need any of their farming tools sharpened or anything like that, they need to go to a Philistine blacksmith because the Philistines didn't want them having any weapons. 
So Jonathan's giving over his armor and his weapons is, a, is signifying his deep trust in David to deliver Israel. He's basically laying down arms and saying, we've won. This is it. He's the anointed one. He is, and that anointed one is the same word that we use for Christ in the Greek or Messiah in the Hebrew. And of course, we know David has a deep connection and a deep foreshadowing story to the life of our true Messiah, Jesus Christ. But Jonathan's response to David is one of exaltation. He's promoting David. He's giving him praise and is doing the exact opposite of what his father is going to do. So narratively, as we look at the way the author has designed this, we very clearly get a call from this passage that we ought to exalt the victorious king in love and in celebration, in deference and submission of everything in our lives to say, here's everything that I am. It's for you. This is the covenant that I'm making. I'm trusting in the king, the coming king, who is already victorious. Jonathan and the rest of the kingdom exalt David. They love him. They celebrate him, and rightly so. David's victory will give Israel the edge on the Philistines for a really good while. So Jonathan's response to David can be summed up perhaps in three words, being love, like-mindedness, and loyalty. And we'll come back to those three words at the end of our time this morning. Now, no one in this passage actually calls for David to take the kingship. You know, when this parade happens in a couple verses here, starting at verse 6, there's no moment where anybody's like trying to put a crown, crown on David or lead him up to the throne or anything like that. But we know where he's truly headed. And Saul knows. David knows too. He's been anointed with the Spirit of God. He's killed a giant because the Spirit of God is in his life. And though it's going to be a long while still, God's plan for David is going to come to pass. So let's not miss Jonathan here at the beginning of our story, because as David comes into the story, we're kind of like, good, let's get out of the shadowy life of Saul. Let's get into David, where he's a man after God's own heart. I want to be more like him. The author says, there's still more about Saul that you need to know. And if there's still more to know about Saul, then there's still more to know about Jonathan. The matter of exalting a victorious king should be immediately applicable to any of us who are followers of the king who conquered sin and death, right? Expressions of love and celebration should be the normal activity in the Christian life. You know, David and Jonathan, of course, will still end up fighting the Philistines for some time after this, as they know that the battle isn't truly over, but they also know that the victory is truly sealed. It's truly won. We see that parallel already in the Christian life. Our job is to continue our battle against sin with the confidence that the victory has already been won at the cross. We must face that battle with the confidence that comes from exalting Christ in our lives. That becomes all the more important when we consider one of the ugly sins that our hearts face, that being jealousy as we learn from Saul. Saul is a stark reminder to beware the self-destructive force of jealousy. It's nothing to sneeze at, nothing to belittle. As easy as it may be for us to think, man, this is like a Sunday school, kindergarten type of topic. Somebody gets a toy that the other kid wanted and they need to learn not to be jealous. We've learned this a hundred times over. Why do we need to consider this today? 
Well, let's consider outside of the book of 1 Samuel another passage that references jealousy. This is in Proverbs 27 and verse 4. Just a short proverb. It says, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before, can you guess it? Jealousy. I love this proverb because it really highlights the destructive power of jealousy. I guess I don't love the destructive power of jealousy, but I love it for understanding, wow, God has really shown some light on this issue that I might think is secondary. Wrath is cruel. Being wrathful means being cruel, means being an unsettling type of person, being someone that no one else wants to be around. Anger can be overwhelming. We can be bound by anger. But then, as the last ultimate in this proverb, it's jealousy. As though, perhaps, and this would be a good Bible study, good word study for you to do on your Sunday afternoon while I'm taking a nap. (laughs) Jealousy, could it possibly be worse than anger? Could it possibly be worse than wrath? Could it be the root of these things? Let's not forget, as we come to consider Saul's jealousy, that by all worldly accounts, he was the cream of the crop. Surely we could answer this question of who could stand before jealousy by saying, Saul, the one who stood head and shoulders over everyone else in Israel, surely could stand before something as pithy as jealousy. We'll hear from the 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon, one of my heroes. He wrote in a sermon that he preached on love and jealousy, when jealousy begins to turn its sharp tooth upon a man's heart, his reason fails him. Madness takes possession of his faculties. A determined purpose, which he would not have dared to contemplate under the influence of a well-balanced judgment, that same purpose prompts, plans, and performs. So if you ever wonder why I'm so obsessed with alliteration, just keep looking back to Spurgeon here. It prompts, plans, and performs, almost without premeditation, an atrocious crime when jealousy rules the cruel hour. And when jealousy shows up, it does rule. It rules in the hearts of any place that it finds a seat. In Saul's response to David, we see that jealousy bites with a sharp tooth and seeps the poison of three things for us to consider this morning in the danger of jealousy. Control, comparison, and cowardice. Again, alliteration. It's one of my favorite things. Control, comparison, and cowardice. Well, back in 1 Samuel chapter 14 and verse 52, we read that when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And this is 1 Samuel 14, 52. So it's a while before David shows up, and we see Jonathan knitting his soul to David's in submission, in giving him his armor, his robe, his weapons, in exact contrast to his father, who we learn in 1452, whenever he found anybody who was strong or valiant or someone impressive, he would attach himself to him. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Knitting is a very delicate process. Attaching sounds like you slabbed a bunch of Gorilla Glue on something and then smacked it onto the other thing. And that kind of gives us a picture for how Saul interacts with other people. He's like, hey, you, you're good at this. Don't leave my sight. And so he does the same thing with David. He didn't even let him go back home after his victory over Goliath. 
Saul's a control freak. All kinds of people seek to control others, though, don't they? Not, not any of us here, I know. We don't have a problem with this. But seriously, if we think about controlling mindsets, we can find it in any relationship. Even spouses can utilize aspects of marriage to find power over the other one or parts of home life to control each other. Friends can make threats and bargains with privileged information. Employees even can find power over their fellow employees, or in some cases their employers, if they have something that the other person wants, something I could control them with. Saul is a professional at this, and he sits in the highest seat in Israel, so he's very able to make anyone do what he wants them to do as long as they'll come under the fear of his rule. This past week, the internet was graced with a user manual to, for employees of a megachurch pastor. Now, this was, again, this wasn't a user manual like a regular sort of employee handbook. This was a user manual to the name of the megachurch pastor, who I'm not going to say, but I don't think any of you know him. I don't know him either. It was a user manual to the megachurch pastor, for the employees of that megachurch pastor. When we talk about megachurches, we're just talking about churches that are bigger than, I don't know, 200 or 300 or whatever you can comfortably say. And being in a a megachurch isn't necessarily a bad thing. But in some cases where there are so many hands doing so much different work, the matter of control becomes a little bit uglier than it usually does. Well, this manual that got leaked online this past week is funny, but it's also incredibly frustrating. So here, um, one of the first things the document includes, and this is in all caps too. Our leader, we work for him. They put his name in there. We work for so-and-so. I am here to serve my leader, so the key to my success in the organization is my ability to work in the way my leader wants me to, even if it's not my preference. This will go better if you understand how your leaders think. If anyone would like a copy of our employee handbook after the service, please let me know. I promise you will not find anything like that whatsoever. Especially this Our Leader talk. It sounds very like North Korea kind of, right? It's kind of scary. But control is one of the poisons that jealousy seeps into the heart of those who let it in. Jealousy pours out a controlling attitude. So I would ask you this morning... Are you looking for ways to control others around you? Or do you even have perhaps habits of controlling others around you? And we can justify a lot of these things, right, as employers and leaders and things like that. And we can do it as parents, too, where we say, well, I'm not controlling my kid. I have to tell them what to do. But is there a controlling attitude behind the instruction? When they don't do what you want them to do, how does that make you feel? There's a question I won't say from the pulpit too often. But our feelings will reflect and and will reveal to us, rather, whether jealousy has a hold on our heart, if it is biting with that sharp tooth at the seat of our hearts. Well, there's control and there's comparison. As chapter 16 continues, we hear about David's victory parade. And these women come out from all the cities of Israel, and they're all shouting, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Now, we read that, and even before we see Saul's response, we get why Saul doesn't like it, don't we? 
Thousands and ten thousands, ten thousands is more than thousands. David is better than Saul. Now, technically speaking, though, this wasn't necessarily a statement of superiority. It was the poetry of the day. It was line upon line, and it was a progression, and that progression would necessarily include higher numbers. And we can imagine that this makes sense, too, when you think about all the people coming out. And, you know, for the most part, they're, of course, they're celebrating that the Philistine has been defeated, but they're also, I imagine, trying to stay under the right graces of the one who is truly their king right now. I don't, there's not an obvious sort of tone in the original language that says that they are singing rebellious songs. But to Saul, it couldn't be further from praise to him. Saul takes this as a comparison between him and David. And he says, look, they've ascribed to him ten thousands and to me only thousands. And what more can he have but the what? Did you notice? What more can he have but the kingdom? Saul knows He knows that his time is short. He knows that somebody else is going to come in. He knows from what Samuel told him only a couple chapters earlier, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your neighbor who is, how about these haunting words, better than you. Saul knows he isn't fit for the position any longer. But rather than turning to the Lord and humbly accepting his fate, He lets comparison devour his thoughts. He is obsessed with David. Again, contrast with Jonathan. Jonathan, we wouldn't say obsessed with David, but he is wholly loyal to him. Saul has a same kind of, well, has a focus on the same person, but it's an incredibly different focus. It is one of comparison, and he doesn't like the comparison. Now, this is interesting as we think about what Saul could have done in this. Because when it came to Eli in the beginning of our book, remember, these these stories, they kind of keep going. They kind of keep happening a little bit. There's overlap when it comes to the leaders in this book of 1 Samuel. But when Eli hears from Samuel that his time is short, that he will very soon be taken away from the leadership of the priesthood of Israel, he kind of says, okay, the Lord's will be done. He submits to the Lord in that. Saul does the opposite. He rages against the Lord in this. Comparison has devoured his thoughts. Does it ever devour your thoughts? We know how to play the comparison game too. We know that very quickly, as we go down that road of going, man, you know, that dad, he does a way better job at this or that or Man, that parent over there, they're they're taking their kids to Disney World again this year, right? Some of them are some of the most, you know, piteous kind of things. They're, They're small things. They're things that don't matter. But they can devour and consume our thoughts if we are open to jealousy. I know in parenting, again, and especially for moms, I hear that comparing ourselves amongst ourselves can lead to feelings of failure And those feelings of failure can cripple us because particularly when we talk about parenting, we aren't just talking about ourselves, but we're talking about our children, those whom we love and are called to care for. 
And if we feel that we're doing a poor job compared to someone else, and if we're, we start to go down that road and end up convincing ourselves, I'll never be as good of a dad as so-and-so, can ruin anything we do put our hand to. What about work, though, too? It's easy for us to focus on our failings and weaknesses, not as areas that we need our Lord's help in to grow, but much more easily we think about them as things that we're just simply worse at than the other guy. This is the kind of comparison that Saul let overtake his thinking. Control, comparison, and cowardice. Look at verse 10 and 11. Things get ramped up quick. If you thought, man, chapter 17 was the height of violence and action in 1 Samuel, Saul is sitting on his throne. It says in verse 10, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house. Now, this is something that happened before, and this is where we're first introduced to David in Saul's life. David is a very skilled musician, and when he plays his lyre and when he sings, it seems to have a positive effect on Saul until now. David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. Saul has let jealousy seep control and comparison into his life that now he is ready to even kill the person that he is mad with jealousy over. But David evaded him twice. We then immediately go to verse 12 and see Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him. You can kind of imagine Saul sitting there with the spear in his hand looking across the room, not very far away, somehow missing a close target, and thinking, who is this guy? The Lord is with him. And that's a scary thought when it's somebody you've made an enemy, but it's an even scarier thought when you realize that because the Lord is with him, he is not with me. I have made my enemy, in one sense, not just David, but God himself. Comparison leads to cowardice. See, he doesn't see David any longer as the cure for his trauma spiritually, but he sees him as the cause of it. He lets all of the wrongdoing and all the wrong things in his life center around this one person. And don't we do that too? We may not say it, we may not even directly treat that person that way, but if we harbor jealousy in our hearts, the next time something goes wrong, it's just going to make us all the more jealous, all the more angry, all the more controlling, and all the more comparing, and all the more cowardly in relation to that person we're jealous of. Jealousy is a sharp tooth. Saul shows us, even the greatest of kings is not immune to it. Who can stand before jealousy? So what we see in Saul today, because the last portion here is the realization of his fear and the connection to the presence of God, is that jealousy is not ultimately a social or character issue, but most importantly, it is a worship issue. The bad doctrine that is created in the jealous, bitten heart is this. The one who is bound by jealousy believes God has wronged me by granting success to someone else and not to me. God's word is so clear. Again, just that proverb. None of us should think that we are immune to jealousy. Who can stand before it? 
Why is jealousy such an easy, why does it have such simple access to our hearts? It's because our hearts are naturally bent towards, bent towards self-exaltation. It's a mindset that God, in granting someone, something to someone else, has taken something from us. And if our goal is to exalt ourselves and to give ourselves as much pleasure and happiness and satisfaction in this life as we can, including the praise of other people, jealousy kicks the door down easily. Let's remember in this that we are responsible for not only our own actions before the Lord, but we are responsible for where we let our minds wander and where we let our minds linger. Jealousy, control, comparison, and cowardice. We find many ways to express this goal of self-exaltation. But ultimately, it is rebellion against the God who deserves exaltation. Indulging in these leads to destructive behaviors. But it primarily damages our ability to relate to God. Jealousy is that ugly fruit of our self-exaltation that is not satisfied to exalt the Lord. So Saul is consumed with jealousy, and thus he opposes David. Now David is, of course, going to be no stranger to opposition in his kingship, both foreign and domestic. He's going to have to deal with Saul. He's going to have to deal with the Philistines. He's even going to get to one point where David decides, it's better for me to go fight on the side of the Philistines than to be anywhere near Saul. It's, it's kind of a crazy thing. I don't know what we're going to do when we come to that passage. We'll find out then. But one of the most remarkable things about David's life that leads us into seeing the life of Christ, his great descendant, is that Christ willingly subjected himself to the jealousy of those who should have exalted them, but have decided to exalt themselves over God. Christ embraced a peculiar humility because he was the one who deserved exaltation but willingly chose alienation. He was the one who was worthy of allegiance but faced opposition and rejection from those he came to save. He did not come to rule with an iron fist and show them who's boss. He came to pull them out of the death and decay and the sting of jealousy and all of its poisons to bring them back to God. And this is the peculiar humility of Christ, that he did this willingly. See, the jealousy, the temptations that we have to face, I guarantee any one of us, if we had the option, if we had a dream tonight and God said, hey, you want me to turn off the temptation button for tomorrow? Who's going to say no to that? Who's going to say, no, I actually want a lot of temptation tomorrow. I want my life to be really, really hard. No, if we had the option, we would bypass all of it. Christ willingly went into it, went into this fallen world of jealous sinners. Again, not just to subject them and to rule over them, but to save them. Because of our sin, our self-exalting thoughts, our words and deeds, Christ suffered on a cross as though he were wrongly exalting himself. And that's even what his enemy said to him. You say you're the son of God. You're exalting yourself. You're saying all these things that aren't true. And those who crucified him, many thought they were doing the right thing. Jealousy is the crime of self-exaltation. 
And the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to live among self-exalting rebels, consumed by jealousy, control, comparison, and cowardice, so that he could take the penalty for all those things from us. Christ transforms our hearts then from bastions of self-absorption to storehouses of grace. And this is what Saul so desperately needed, but would not be able to find, at least at this point in our story. For us, it is at the cross that we see Jesus didn't merely suffer at the behest of those who were jealous of his success, though. That beyond that, he suffered the wrath of God that they and every other human being, including us, deserve for our self-exaltation. And that victory that Christ had at the cross over the grave in his resurrection, just like the victory over David we talked about last month, two months ago now almost, is shared with those who could not overcome the opposition themselves. Let us never forget as we come to God's word and we see what God's word calls us to, we see our problem with obeying it, we must see Christ not as the one who says, okay, pull it together, get that jealousy thing done with. No, we must look to him for all these things. And I know the temptation is going to be that you might say, you know, I do see some jealousy in my heart, but I'm pretty sure now that you bring it up, I'm done with that. And I think I can, hand, I think I can move on and forget about it. Friends, if we seek to do anything apart from the work of Christ in us, we can do nothing to please Christ. We can do nothing right apart from him. One of my favorite verses, John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So if jealousy is this minor issue in your heart and mind, fix that. See it rightly. See it as the writer of the Proverbs says, this is something that no one can stand before on their own. Yet in Christ, we can stand. Those poisoned by jealousy find the cure in the exaltation and worship of Christ. In responding in love, in celebration, and in worship. So John Piper would call this godly jealousy. He writes, I'm jealous. So this is the mindset of godly jealousy. I am jealous that God gets all my affections of love and trust and not be given away to anybody else. And if God has them, then my heart will be steadied and I will not crave the attention that I'm sinfully craving in my jealousy of others. So, Piper writes, I think, really at the root, being eaten up with a sinful jealousy is probably owing to a failure to be jealous enough for God getting all my affections, all my trust, all my allegiance, so I can be stable and strong and restful in him. Jealousy comes in, in one sense, to understand it better. Jealousy of other people comes in when we are not jealous, not of God, but for Jealous that he have my whole heart. Jealous that those around me are impacted by the work of God through me to give their hearts to him as well. For that is our calling in his life. But this is the kind of change that takes place when we embrace exalting Christ. It is godly jealousy. The work of Christ redeeming our fallen thinking and giving us his mind. So just as we may be bent on our own exaltation, making sure everyone can see what we can do and longing to be free of the control, comparison, and cowardice that jealousy brings, Christ is able to restore us in us 
the purpose of drawing our affections to him. He's able to restore a godly jealousy in the hearts of his people. This is the freedom that he offers to us, church. Freedom from self and freedom to life in him. And it isn't just a different opinion. It's the only option. Remember, David's victory over Goliath was absolutely necessary because there was no other way to be freed from the threat of slavery and death that the Philistine threatened. David's success was owing to the exaltation of the Lord in his life. He embraced a jealousy for God's glory. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 46 and 47, he says, Goliath, I'm going to kill you today that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. And just as Goliath was given into the hand of David, so this victory that Christ has won is given to your hands, church. And a victory over sin, over death, and specifically over jealousy as well. In Christ alone, we can be freed from our self-destructive preoccupation with sin. We can find the life that only he can offer. And to reject this is to indulge in the worst form of jealousy. That jealousy over that which belongs to Christ. Namely, I don't know, everything you have, everything you are. If we who belong to Christ were to withhold from him any portion of who we are, any portion of our lives and say, no, I'd like to live this way in this regard, in this particular form. I'll keep this here. That's the worst kind of jealousy. So let's rewind for a moment to Jonathan's response to David at the beginning of the passage. Remember, his soul was knit to David's soul. Jonathan joined with David in love, like-mindedness, and loyalty. Does Jonathan's posture here reflect your identifying with Christ? Because we need to conquer jealousy by embracing our identity in Christ. That's what Jonathan did. He basically said, look, here's my armor. Here's everything about me physically that makes me a warrior, at least in the eyes of the world, right? Everything that we can see, you know, the armor, the weapons, the robe, the prestige, all of that, laying it at the feet of David, identifying with him. Does that present an accurate picture of your posture before the Lord? Or are you holding on to those weapons and the armor because you think, you know, one of these days, somebody might just think they're better at me, better than me at something, right? Or I might, I might get jealous. I might need to control someone. I'm going to need a pointy sword for that. Are you content to be the one that would abdicate the throne of your life to another? Because that's what Jonathan did. I don't think he knew that's what he was doing in that moment, but ultimately he was proclaiming, I'm not the next king, David is. So may we not sit on the thrones of our lives, of our hearts, but leave that to Christ. I love John the Baptist's words in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, and I, I long to live by them. I don't do a very good job. But when John's disciples asked him about Jesus, and that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing more people on the other side of the river than John and his disciples were, he brings that up, they bring that up to him, and he says in verse 29 and 30 of John 3, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. How many bridegrooms are there in a wedding? One. Just one. And the one who has the bride is the one who has the bridegroom. It doesn't matter if the bridegroom is wearing 
if, if there's somebody else wearing a nicer tux or standing in the bridegroom's spot, it doesn't matter. There is one bridegroom and is the one who has the bride. Then the friend of the bridegroom, John says, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must, we all know these words, right? He must what? Increase. I must decrease. This is the cure to jealousy. Having a heart that looks at Christ as the true bridegroom, as the one truly worthy of exaltation and of praise and finding joy complete in him. Jealousy may be the desperate attempt of our hearts to take joy and fulfillment for itself, but godly jealousy ushers all attention to the exalted Christ. In that commitment, our joy is complete. So both Jonathan and John the Baptist give us great pictures of what it looks like to embrace our identity in relation to the king. We are who we are because he is who he is. We are to exalt Christ, to promote and praise him in a world that would promote and praise self and other created things. We must embrace that call, embrace that mission today. Now a few weeks ago, uh, I invited you to spend some time in prayer in small groups and Maybe you were there and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I don't want to have to do that again. Maybe you weren't there and you thought, oh my goodness, that doesn't sound good. Whoops. And then you're like, oh good, the PowerPoint's not working, he's not going to do it. Sorry. I know that this might be an uncomfortable thing, but I really think this is what the Lord wants us to do when we come to his word. And we ought to avail ourselves of being together and hearing his word by going to prayer. Now, again, some of you might be really excited to pray and to look at these things and go, yes, I I want to pray about these things. Some of you might be going, I don't want to be a part of this at all. Join in a group. No one is pressured to say anything whatsoever because if you are sitting silently and praying at the place of your heart, listening to other people praying, that's just as good as if you were standing giving an amazing speech of a prayer. So I'll leave you with these four things, and then I'll invite you to join with brothers and sisters around you. First is the hard one. Do you need to confess jealousy? Because James 5.16 actually tells us to confess our sins one to another so that we may be healed. See, we started off thinking about jealousy as this really tiny thing, but if there is jealousy in your heart that you need to deal with, when it comes to this kind of question, you realize that jealousy is not a small thing anymore, is it? Right? So I'm not requiring anyone. I'm not going require you to do anything. But it's the first point we should probably make. Is there jealousy in our hearts that we need to confess? Secondly, would you pray for godly jealousy in our hearts collectively that we might exalt Christ even when we're battling jealousy? Then would you pray that Christ would be the deepest reality of your identity, not just yours, but all of ours, that we would walk out his call in our lives? And then last, would you thank the Lord for the successes, blessings, and good going on in someone else's life? I'll encourage you to gather in prayer, and I'll give you some space to do that before we sing our last song.